Let us give our attention to God's Word this morning. After a couple of weeks' break from 1 Corinthians and hearing from our elders, Contreras and Aguida, we are back to our sermon series called A Roadmap for Raw Christians, entitled because the Christians in Corinth were raw. They were first century new believers, and they had a lot of growth to do as followers of Jesus Christ. So we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. That's on page 955 of the ESD Pew Bibles. 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. Finish out chapter 6. Let's go to the Lord and pray together. Father, as we approach your, your word, we ask your blessing on, on the reading and the proclamation of your word, Father, and we ask that you would allow us to listen and hear with eyes of faith. We, we pray for the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would give each of us a a desire and a hunger for your word and to know the the true meaning of your word. And Father, we ask for some some concrete application, something we can can take and put to use in our life as as we live for you as followers of Jesus Christ. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We've probably all seen enough movies and television to recognize the classic scene called Run Away from the Explosion Before It Goes Off. You've you've seen this one before, I'm sure. Uh, It doesn't matter if it was made back in the 40s in black and white or if it was made yesterday and if it was just released. In, In the older movies, sometimes it was a western and there was a bundle of dynamite and there was a long fuse that someone had lit, and it was burning and sparkling and making its way towards the bundle, and, and the, the characters have to, to run away. Maybe they're running out of a mine shaft or something, and they're, they're holding their head as they, they pump their arms, and they're trying to get away from this explosion before it goes off. And then in more modern times, it's probably not a bundle of dynamite. Maybe it's a block of C4 plastic explosives, and Instead of a fuse, there's a digital timer that's counting down, and the, the hero is, is trying to run away, and maybe there's people, it's a crowded area, so they're waving, go, 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 it's all going to blow. And they switch to kind of this slow motion uh, action scene where they're just barely escaping from the explosion. We've seen this before. And there's a common theme no matter if it's made in the 40s or or made yesterday, and it's this. There is imminent life-threatening danger associated with standing near the explosion. And anyone standing near it will not remain safe unless they take action. And that action, whether the fuse is, is running down and only has a few inches left or there's only a few seconds on the timer, the action is to run away as fast as you can. That's your only hope in that runaway from the explosion situation. Well, in 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20, Paul tells the raw Christians in Corinth to flee from sexual immorality. And that word translated as flee in the ESV can also be translated as to escape 
from or to run away from. In fact, some modern paraphrase translations even use the phrase for verse 18, run from sexual immorality. So I think it'll be helpful for us this morning when we talk about this topic. It's, it's a serious topic. It's, it's rather weighty. It's, it's sexual immorality. So when we talk about this topic this morning, I, I think it'll be helpful for us to view that as one of these explosions. We, we need to adopt that same sense of urgency in terms of running away from sexual immorality. That same urgency that we would use to run away from an explosion that is about to go off, we want to, to take that and apply it to this sin of sexual immorality. We want to run away. There is imminent life-threatening danger associated with it, and under no circumstances will believers remain safe if they stay near or remain in sexual immorality. Let's look at this passage. It starts at verse 12 and runs... Through 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and stomach for the food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Right out of the gate, we need to address the topic of prostitution. It's mentioned a couple times in this passage, and let's just get it over with, uh, we need to understand what they were dealing with here in the first century. So one option that, that some scholars have looked at is it could have been prostitution that was part of a pagan worship service. So literally a, a ritual associated with worshiping a pagan god in or near that temple. That's one thing that it could be. Number two, it could have just been general prostitution on the street. It could have been that type of thing. Or, number three, and I think this is much more likely, uh, we need to understand that there were multiple, we've established there were multiple pagan temples in Corinth. We talked about that right in one of the beginning uh, sermons. There were all kinds of, of pagan deities available to worship. And these pagan temples hosted uh, public uh, dinner banquets for, for the general uh, public and population. So the idea was that... Um, it wasn't an actual worship service, but it was kind of like an open event, kind of like an open house. Come get to know us. We're going to provide this for you. Um, we, we see something not, not associated with immorality, but we see something even today when we see something like a, a local civic club 
having a, a spaghetti dinner or, or the fireman's pancake breakfast or, or something like that. It's, it's an open house event. People are invited, they pay, and it's a chance to get to know them and learn more about whoever's throwing the banquet or the, the, you know, the dinner or the breakfast and hopefully attracts some more followers. So that, that kind of thing was going on in these pagan temples. And so when they would host these dinner banquets, open houses to the public, they would have a lot of food that had been sacrificed to their particular deity. They would have a lot of alcohol. And then afterwards, they would make prostitutes available. Um, we have extra biblical evidence that indicates the availability of prostitutes after one of these dinner banquet open house types of things was, was expected. It was almost just kind of uh, an expected part of the post-banquet Festivities. So this seems to be what the raw believers in Corinth were participating in. I, 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 I much favor option number three, what I just talked about. Probably not one and two, although those things are also sexually immoral activity. But it seems like they were, they were doing number three, and they were defending their actions by citing Christian liberty. They were appealing to their freedom in Christ. And then they were attending these dinner banquets open to the public and saying, what's the big deal? Everybody else is doing it. We're free in Christ. So it doesn't really matter. So what we have here in 12 through 20 is Paul responding to this serious misunderstanding of what it means to be free in Christ. Let's look now at verse 12, uh, both 12 and 13. I want to point out at the beginning also that there are three phrases set off in quotation marks. I don't want us to miss that. They're kind of small, but they're there. And I want us to see those. Look at all things are lawful for me. That's two times in verse 12. And then food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food. And I'm also going to include and God will destroy both one and the other. That's one time in verse 13. Now, if you're using an ESV or the Pew Bible, your quotation marks stop after the word food. I'm going to make a case for why they should go to the end of the sentence in just a moment. But the point of the quotation marks is to alert the modern reader, like us, that what Paul's doing is he's taking the Corinthians' words and he's using them back at them. Then he's responding to, to what they are saying. That's what they're there for. Um, some translations even insert the phrase, you say, and then the quotation marks and what follows in order to communicate that he's trying to cite them. He's trying to take what they're saying, throwing it back at them before he responds to it. So these quoted phrases are, are kind of like catchy slogans or mantras that the, the Corinthian raw believers were using to justify their behavior and their sexual immorality. And then after each of these phrases, there's a response from Paul designed to correct them and to correct their misunderstanding of Christian liberty and what it means to be free in Christ. It also shows them the importance of their physical bodies as they live out their calling to follow Jesus as his church. So in verse 12, when we see all things are lawful for me, that's their first slogan. It's repeated twice in verse 12. That's their, their first uh, mantra that they're seeking shelter behind. And it does appear to be their attitude and mindset. This is going to show up again in chapter 10. Paul's going to quote it again in the very same way. He's going to throw it back at them before correcting them. And this explains a lot, doesn't it? 
This explains why they've been acting so worldly. If they, if their attitude is, all things are lawful for me, I can do whatever I want, that explains why they're they're forming up these subgroups around different personalities. This explains why there's a man sleeping with his stepmother. This explains why the church just turns a blind eye to that behavior and doesn't respond to it with church discipline. It explains why they're taking each other to court to get rich at their brother's expense. And it explains why they think they can live however they want and still be called legitimate followers of Jesus Christ. But we have to ask, where did this idea come from? This idea that I can do whatever I want. Well, probably from Paul's teaching. Of course, Paul did not teach that, but it's a misunderstanding of Paul's teaching. If we look at 1 Corinthians 10, 31, it says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You can see how that might be taken out of context. Uh, Galatians 5.1, also Pauline teaching, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. He's telling them, don't, don't think for a minute that you're not free. Well, of course, they've taken this to the extreme. They've heard this teaching, you are sons, you are free, there's no condemnation for those of Jesus Christ. It's all this freedom language, and they've been muting the rest of it. So as a result, they, they're under the impression that they have this double-O license to sin, and that they can do whatever they want, and there's no consequence. It's a form of antinomianism. Remember, antinomianism, anti-meaning against, namas meaning law, against the law. So it's, it's this idea that Christians under the New Testament, under Christ, are free, and there's absolutely no moral constraints or commandments that we have to go by. Um, it's a rare position nowadays, but it's still out there. And this seems to be what they're keying in on. This is their misunderstanding of the teaching that they have received. Now, we don't have to go too far to see that this is indeed not the teaching that Paul brought. If we go bump down from Galatians 1 to Galatians 13, uh, 5.13, we see, For you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. He's very quick to follow that up. Or, immediately before 12 through 20 in our passage, we, we look right above in, in six through, through, uh, or chapter 6, 9 through 11, where Paul tells them, do not be deceived. You, you can't remain in any of these sins and still inherit the kingdom of God. That, that should have been also uh, a clue that he's not talking about antinomianism. Where, well, somewhere along the way, they've picked up on this free in Christ message and they've, they've abused it and they've taken it to, to the extreme and have decided that all things are lawful for me. This could also be translated as, I am free to do anything. Or, I have the right to do anything. Or even a very loose paraphrase, I'm free to do whatever I want. That was their attitude and it explains a lot. But Paul now is going to correct this serious misunderstanding. He says, but not all things are helpful or profitable or beneficial. But I will not be dominated by anything. Dominated or mastered or under the, held under the authority of. So Paul's really going to key in on this idea of, of freedom. He's trying to correct their misunderstanding. Now when we think of freedom, 
we, we probably have an idea of what that means in our heads too. And apart from, from this context, let's just think about that for a minute. Almost always when we talk about freedom, it means that we're free from something and we're free for something. There's something that we're free from and there's something that we're, we're freed for. For example, um, we think about the American Revolution. When we think back in the 1700s when America was birthed as a nation, we were, we were fighting for our freedom from England and taxation without representation and all those things. But we were fighting our, for our freedom for independence to become our own nation and things like the free exercise of religion, freedom of speech, right to bear arms, that type of thing. So there was something that we were free from but they're also something we were free for. Paul's correcting them on both, count, both counts. Um, they, their understanding was that they were free from any commandments or any kind of moral restraints and free for doing whatever they want. Paul says, no, uh, that's not it. That's not what freeing Christ means. We are free from the dominating power and penalty of sin. That's what we're freed from. If we look at Romans 8, 2, it says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That's fairly explicit. It's not freedom from all moral restraints and, the, and all the commandments of God. It's, it's freedom from that penalty and power of sin and death itself. Being justified or saved through faith in Christ reconciles us to the Father, and we are no longer regarded or reckoned as sinners assigned to eternal death, damnation, but we are freed from all that. In Christ, we enjoy a new forgiven status that is set us free from both the penalty of sin and its domineering power. We're also freed for something, and it's not to do whatever we want, it's not to achieve ultimate autonomy or lawlessness, it's not so that we can go out and, and engage in whatever kind of behavior we want to fulfill our self-gratifying desires and dreams and wishes and wants. Um, no, Paul says, that's not it. It is for following God's commands by being, being a part of his body, the church, carrying out one another commands in the New Testament, uh, tangible demonstrations of God's love towards one another, using our spiritual gifts for the building up of the church, doing our part to carry out the mission of God that he has given his people, and that is to make disciples. That's what we're saved for. Uh, Romans 7, 6, But we are now released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit. Serve who? Ourselves? Of course not. Serve God. We're serving our Lord and Master. Paul's saying, not all things are beneficial or profitable as you live free in Christ. If you move forward, he's telling the church, with this serious misunderstanding of what it means to be free in Christ, you're going to end up falling into slavery again. If you walk in sin, you will be enslaved to sin. Sin will dominate and master you. So, so don't think that this is um, how it works. Uh, once again, we look at Romans 6, 11 through 13. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ, in Christ Jesus. Let no sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God 
as those who have been brought from death to life. So really that's all it takes, is making sure we're looking at the entirety of Scripture, not taking verses out of context and thinking freedom in Christ means we're free to do whatever we want, but seeing what we're freed from, sin's penalty and power, and what we're freed for, to serve and follow Christ in righteousness. Verse 13 is the next slogan or catchphrase that the Corinthians are using as as a, a means to defend their sinful behavior. It says, food is meant for the stomach, and stomach for the food, and we're also going to include, and God will destroy both one and the other. I want to put up the NIV translation for this verse. This is one of those that says, uh, you say, food is for the stomach, and stomach for the food, and God will destroy them both. Do you see how it inserts that phrase, you say, that helps us to clarify that it's the Corinthians' speech. But look where the quotation marks are. In this instance, I think the NIV gets it right and and captures the intent and meaning of of what Paul's writing. I'll show you again how it's a better fit in just a minute. But like the first slogan, the raw believers have probably picked this up from Paul's teaching. Uh, Later on in chapter 10, Paul teaches that they can eat whatever they want. There's this discussion about meat that's been sold in the marketplace that had been previously been sacrificed to a pagan god, and Paul's instruction to them is, go ahead and eat it. It doesn't make any difference. No big deal. If it's there, just eat it. And so they were probably thinking, okay, I guess it doesn't matter what we eat. Jesus also taught that what goes into the mouth is not a matter of importance. Look at Matthew 5. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? So this is probably where they got this teaching that whatever you do with your body doesn't matter. Now, as the context makes clear, this whole passage is about sexual immorality. This this passage right here is not about food. Uh, This is the only time food is mentioned, and the reason it's mentioned is because they're taking this, this slogan and applying it to sexual appetites. The thinking is along these lines. Well, um, food is just a natural bodily function, and whenever you're hungry, you eat, and it doesn't really matter. So it's the same thing with sexual desire. Um, It's a natural bodily function, and whenever you have that desire, you just act on it, and it's no big deal. The reason we should favor the NIV translation and extend the quotations is because God will not destroy the body, the stomach, and food. The Bible teaches us that there will be eating and drinking in the kingdom. For example, Matthew 26, 29 says, this is Jesus speaking, I tell you I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Earlier in that same passage, or earlier in Matthew, Jesus teaches that his people are going to be reclining at table with Abraham in the kingdom of God. So there is going to be eating and drinking. There is going to be food in eternity. There is going to, there, we are going to have bodies in eternity. Our glorified bodies will be eating and drinking, which means the stomach and food are not going to be destroyed. So God is not going to destroy them both. Now that doesn't make any sense. If we end the quotation marks after food then that means Paul's teaching, God will destroy both one and the other. And that's not true. So we're not going to include that in the quotation marks. 
The NMD got it right. It's part of their mantra, and we see how that fits, right? First they say, well, food for the stomach, stomach for the food, and what's, what's the big deal? God's going to destroy everything in the end so we can do everything we want right now while in the body. Their thinking was that these bodies don't really matter. It's, it, it's all spiritual. It's all about your mind and your soul and your thinking and your beliefs and your doctrine. Well, we can do whatever we want with these bodies, right? Paul says, no. So with the quotations in the proper place, we now move to his response. He says the body is not meant for sexual immorality. Now there's Paul correcting them. There there it is. A flat-out denial of their thinking. And then a substitute slogan. The body is meant for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Do you see how that mirrors their incorrect thinking? Stomach for food, food for the stomach. He says, no, body for the Lord, Lord for the body. Try to memorize that catchy phrase instead of the first one. Your bodies, he's telling them, were not given to you by God so you can engage in any form of sexual immorality that seems good to you in the moment. Even if it's regarded as normal by the, by the, by the culture, even if it's legalized, even if it's accepted, even if it's encouraged. And it was all those things. It was legal, normalized, accepted, and encouraged. Paul's saying, it doesn't matter. In the first century... Get ready for this. Wives were encouraged not to be angry with their husbands if they were sleeping with other women. And the reasoning went like this. It was out of respect for her that the man was satisfying some of these excessive sexual appetites outside the marriage. Can you believe that? That was the thinking. Ancient writings state that extramarital affairs or prostitute visits were, to be were not to be forbidden to any man because it was part of the culture and, quote, common practice. So they were screaming, yes, run towards sexual immorality. And Paul says, no, run away. Get away from that as soon as you can. Your bodies were not meant for that. Our bodies enable us to follow Jesus Christ. That's what our bodies were, were given to us for. They were meant to carry out the revealed will of God. All people are called to live and serve the Lord, and all people exist to glorify God. In verse 14, he says, And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So here Paul calls on the resurrection to help correct their understanding, or excuse me, their misunderstanding of our, our bodies. Once again, that is also an argument, incidentally, for why the quotation marks are in the wrong place. Paul's saying, look, our bodies do matter. They're going to be raised. These same bodies that we live in now, Paul is saying, are going to be raised. Now they're going to be glorified. We're going to be free from defect. There's no more disease, no more imperfections. But they are our bodies. These same bodies that we're touching and living and moving around in that go into the grave are going to be raised. They matter to God, not just now, but for eternity. It's not just our hearts and minds that are saved. It's our bodies as well. And they're to be used in a way that live out our calling as followers of Christ. Verse 15, do you not know, he uses that a couple times in this passage, Paul uses the phrase, do you not know, for something that they're responsible for knowing, but are failing to live out. That's what that phrase means. Your bodies are members of Christ. We are united to Christ spiritually. Because of our spiritual union with, with Christ, his resurrection guarantees our resurrection. 
In other words, where Christ's body goes, our body goes. And in that way, we are joined to him. Our bodies are, are joined. So because believers are part of the body of Christ, Paul asks this ridiculous question, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? And he answers the question. It's rhetorical. Never, or by no means, or may it never be. Verse 16, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. Of course, we know what this, this should look really familiar to us. This is biblical teaching about man and woman coming together, joined in sexual union. They are literally joining their two bodies in a way that can be described as a one flesh union. It's this physical union, that one flesh bond that between a believer and a prostitute that Paul is addressing. By, by joining their, their bodies with a prostitute, they're, they're uniting a bond between holy and unholy, between a, a member of Christ and something that's not a member of Christ. Verse 17, But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. First of all, it's sinful. That should be enough. But in addition, he's saying by engaging in this sin, you're corrupting the spiritual relationship that you already have with Christ. You're already bound to someone. Jesus Christ. Don't bind yourself in a one flesh union with someone who is not of Christ. And then we come to his action point in verse 18 in light of all of these arguments and then including some arguments afterwards. But here's, here's the command. Flee from sexual immorality. Run away from sexual immorality. And then more reasons. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. Why is sexual sin worse than any other type of sin? That's, that's essentially what Paul's saying here. And the answer is because sexual sin creates a one flesh union that is against God and against our union with Christ. No other sin physically joins one person with another person in a one flesh union. No other sin does that. But sexual morality does. It defiles a believer's body in a powerful way that other sins just can't achieve. And it's a problem because, all the, in addition to all the other things he's just mentioned, it's a defilement of the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that brings us to verse 19. As temples of the Holy Spirit, God has designated for holy use our hearts, our minds, but also our bodies. Now, if you recall in the Old Testament, God has several commands protecting the holiness and the and, and the lack of defilement for his physical temples, there were just all kinds of regulations designed to protect the, the holy to come into contact with the unholy or the common. How much more so with our bodies that are temples of the Holy Spirit? Paul's saying you're rendering your body unfit for service because you're combining holy with unholy. You're, you're taking your body, which is one with the Lord, and making it one with a prostitute. You're defiling God's dwelling place. And then finally in verse 19 and 20, you are not your own for you're bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We were bought with the blood of Jesus. He purchased us. We are no longer slaves to sin, but we are now slaves to God. 
Let's look at Romans 6, 20 through 22. It says, For when you were slaves of sin, that's our unregenerate status, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Now, we're not going to unpack that entire thing, but, but what I want us to see is the contrast. Slaves of sin, slaves of God. So we need to correct any misunderstanding ourselves that we might have. When, when Jesus purchase, purchases us with his blood, he's not setting us free and releasing us from the bonds from this evil master called sin so that we can go out and be our autonomous selves and, and spread our wings and, and finally reach self-actualization and pursue whatever we want. We're, we're free to roam and do whatever we want. That's not it. He's saying, I'm freeing you from this master so that you will be under a new master. We're not free unto ourselves. We're free to follow Christ as our master and our owner. You belong to Jesus. And not just your hearts and minds and your souls, your bodies belong to him too. This reminds us of our old friend, the Heidelberg Catechism. This is question number one. It used to be a lot of uh, Reformed people had memorized this. Not so much anymore. That's okay. It says, what is the only comfort in life and death? Listen to this answer. That I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood hath fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil. That Q&A is based on this passage. We've been purchased by Jesus Christ, not so we could be free to do whatever we want, but to be free to follow him and serve him as our master. Paul's saying, Jesus is your Lord, so glorify him with your body, which he owns. Run away is the main command in this, in this passage. And if we were to summarize this section, we'd say this. Paul is teaching the New Testament uh, raw believers in Corinth that because Jesus has bought them with his blood, they are not their own, but belong to him. And his owner, ownership extends to their bodies, which are temples of the Holy Spirit. Sexual sin joins the body of a believer to someone who is not their spouse in a sinful one flesh union. The result is a defilement of our bodies, sin against the Holy Spirit, a rejection of the authority of Christ over our bodies, and a rebellion against the life and purpose that God has called his people to live. Therefore, they are not to engage in sexual immorality, but flee from it or run away. That's what this passage is all about. And I want to draw two application points out of this for us today in 2022. First, I want to make sure we understand why we are to run away. Why we are to treat sexual immorality like a bomb with 13 seconds left on the timer. Why is our only option to, to start pumping our arms and getting as far away from possible uh, from imminent danger and death? And we would summarize this point by saying this. Our bodies are not our own. Our bodies are not our own. This, this is a biblical truth, and it is counter-cultural in 2022. If you said this on the street or publicly, the world would recoil at the idea that we don't have authority over our own bodies. They would completely reject it. 
But, as we just read, it's true. We are not our own. We belong to Jesus, and that includes our bodies. This means, among other things, we are not to have the final say over what we do with our bodies. Jesus does. It also means we, also means we don't get to decide how to live out our sexuality. Jesus does. Because our bodies are not our own. His authority extends all the way down to what we cover our bodies with. Look at 1 Timothy 2.9. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. So the New Testament teaches that we are to dress, dress modestly, which would prohibit certain articles of clothing. So we are not free to define who we are. We are not free to, uh, to decide what we do sexually. We're not even free to decide what we wear because Jesus owns our bodies. They do not belong to us. Well, it's no surprise that the world completely rejects us. They don't have faith in Christ, and they don't believe in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. To help us understand what this means, or to help someone else understand it, if you want to explain it, I want us to think of our bodies as having a certificate of ownership, kind of like a deed or a title. Okay? You understand that whoever's name is on the deed or the title, they're the owners. It's not uncommon today to have uh, a student driver in high school or college or, or just a young adult who's still kind of trying to get to that point where they're ready to, to launch. It's not uncommon to have them receive a car that mom and dad buy for them, right? And they say, here, this is your car. Here's the keys. You drive it. You take care of it. You put gas in it. Um, you can cart your friends around in it. You can go to school. You can go to work. And for all intents and purposes, it's yours. You can put something on the rear view mirror, we're not going to drive it, and mom and dad never do drive it, they don't even get in it. It's their car. But, if something tragic were to happen, like mom and dad die together on a plane trip back from Florida, or something like that, and the, the estate manager, or the executor, says all the cars that they own are going to be sold and liquidated so the money can be distributed evenly among the children, the driver might say, hey, that's my car. I, that's mine. They gave it to me. It's mine. And the executor would come back and say, actually, no, because your name is not on the title. Theirs is. So it doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter how much gas you put in it. It doesn't matter how much you think it's yours. It actually belongs to them. It's the same thing with Christ. It, as believers, it doesn't matter how much we walk around in these bodies or how much food we put into it. We are not our own. Jesus' name is on the title to our bodies, not us. And that's something the world just doesn't understand. Our bodies belong to him. It's interesting, the, one of the mantras or the catchy slogans that is used today by unbelievers is, my body, my choice. But as believers who belong to Jesus, we say, this is not my body, and I don't get to choose what I do with it. That should be our catchy phrase or slogan. This means we are given sex as a good gift from God to be enjoyed within a marriage covenant between one man and one woman, and any sexual behavior outside of that context is considered sexual immorality. That's what Jesus has said, and so that's our law. When we decide for ourselves what we want to do with our bodies against God's revealed will, 
it's obviously sinful, but it's especially grievous to God and damaging to the believer when they join themselves to someone else in sexual sin. And that's Paul's point in verses 18 and 19. The result of a sinful one flesh union is defilement of our bodies. It's a sin against the Holy Spirit. It's a, re- a rejection over God's rightful authority over our bodies. And it's a rebellion against his purposes for his people who have been called out to live for him. So that's why we are to flee or run away from sexual immorality. Our bodies are not our own. His name is on the title of our bodies. Number two, application is coming back to that commandment. Run away. Now we know why. Now let's focus on the commandment. Run away. Flee. Escape from sexual immorality. When this word is used in the New Testament, it is often used as a commandment to flee or run away from something that is life-threatening. For example, Matthew 2.13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee, that's the same word, to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So to run away in this context is to run away from death. Hebrews 11.33, likewise, this is describing those that have had faith and have gone before us, who through faith conquer kingdoms, enforce justice, obtain promises, stop the mouths of lions, quench the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. That's talking about execution. And the, the word escaped there is the same one translated as flee. We could also translate it as run away. So these contexts are indicating danger, life and death danger, run away. Sexual immorality is dangerous. We shouldn't be playing around with it. We should treat it the same as if it's a bomb about ready to go off. Run away. Now notice specifically, it does not say, do your best to fight against sexual immorality. It does not say, strive to work hard to get away from sexual immorality. It doesn't even say, fight hard against sexual immorality. It just says, run away. Don't, don't even engage in any kind of uh, contest or, or negotiations with it or think that you could stand right next to it and put up a good fight and survive. It just says, run away. In other words, don't try to disarm the bomb. Don't try to stand right next to sexual immorality and say, I can handle this. I, I think I can, you know, engage in this once in a while or entertain it. I think I'll be okay. Don't try to disarm the bomb. The only option is to run away. At this point, I also want us to remember that this command covers all of sexual immorality. I I don't want anybody out there thinking, well, I don't have to worry about prostitution. No, this covers everything. Look at the context. We've been talking about this since 5.1. It includes incest. It includes premarital sex. It includes extramarital sex. Uh, six nine. It includes adultery, homosexuality. It also includes pornography. It includes every other form of sexual immorality you can think of. In other words, there is no uh, permissible or acceptable form of sexual immorality that's okay for the believer. It covers everything, and the command is to run away. Now, I don't want us to to leave without understanding that not only are we commanded to run away, but we are commanded to run to something. 
and it doesn't make much sense just to run away if you're running aimlessly. If you think back to the old action sequences in the westerns, and they're they're running away from the dynamite, or they're 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 trucking it out of the mine shaft. They don't just run and, and run around aimlessly. They're usually trying to run to get behind a rock. Or if it's a military movie, they're usually running and then they're doing a home plate slide into a foxhole or something. Or if it's a it's a modern action, they're they're running and they're trying to get out the door around around the cover of a building or something substantial. They're not just running away; they're running to something. And it's the same thing with sexual immorality. We are to run away from sexual immorality, but we are to run to Jesus. Jesus is our rock, our stronghold, our fortress, our strong tower, our deliverer, our shield, our defender, and our savior. It's not enough to simply run away. We can run away and run in a circle and end up right back where we were. We can run in figure eights. We can run all day. That's not going to help escape the blast radius of sexual immorality. We have to run to Jesus. So I want to close with a couple categories. One is preventative, and then one is for someone who's active in sexual immorality. So first, preventative. To the married, facing temptation, run away from sexual immorality and run to Jesus. Have you noticed that in the past few years, there have been more and more people that are just falling off of cliffs? I hear about it in the news periodically. Someone's standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon and they just fall in, or they're on a hike on a mountain and they just fall off. Now the reason is, they're trying to take the ultimate selfie. They've got their cell phone here and they get up and they, they walk right up to the edge and then they turn around and put their phone up and they're trying to get everything in their face in the corner. And as they're there, they're losing perspective. They're losing the sense of body awareness of where their feet are, and they fall in. It's the same thing with sexual immorality. If we're walking towards the edge of sexual immorality or adulterous thoughts, don't wait until you're all the way up to the edge to say, this line and no more. Don't, don't think that, well, you know, I can flirt around a little bit, or this person has, has really captured my heart. I think I'm just going to enjoy this relationship and, and not tell my spouse as, that it's this deep. Don't think you can walk all the way up there. You will lose perspective. And before, you're, before you know it, your foot will step off and you will say something or do something that you cannot undo. The commandment is to run away from sexual immorality. So for the married, be aware if there's someone out there that has captured your attention. Be aware if there's someone that you like and you know they like you and you've got kind of this unspoken little thing going on. Run away. Tell your spouse, shine light on it, get out of there. Treat it like a bomb and move away before it explodes. To young adult and singles, you are especially in the crosshairs. Satan has his scope lined up on your head when it comes to sexual immorality. It's extremely difficult for young adults and singles. You need to know that if you have decided to follow Jesus Christ, if he has called you into a relationship, then he has called you to sexual purity, and he has called you to run away from sexual immorality. This means that you cannot set out as a student 
and as a young adult and think, well, you know, I think I'm going to wait until I'm in my 30s to get married. And I think I'm just going to play around. You know, I'll have a girlfriend or a boyfriend, and I'm just going to enjoy a, a healthy sex life, and then I'll find my forever person, and then I'll settle down, and then I'll get married, and then I'll stay monogamous. That's not going to work. That's not going to work. I'm not saying there's a one-size-all-fits-all age for marriage, or even that you have to marry at all. What I am saying, as a follower of Jesus Christ, if you decide that you're going to wait until your 30s or 40s or however old to get married, I want to tell you, you are also deciding and committing to remain a virgin until that point and when you get married. That's God's will for your life. Anything else is sexual immorality. To think that you can engage in, in sexual behavior outside of marriage and be fine and have no consequences is like picking up a stick of dynamite and holding on to it as it goes off and thinking you're going to be okay. It doesn't work like that. Do not listen to your peers. Do not listen to the world or to the movies or to the media which paint a distorted picture of sexuality Instead, listen to God's word. Unplanned pregnancies, becoming a mother or father at an age that you're not ready to become a mother or father, sexually transmitted diseases that can stay with you for the rest of your life, bringing the temple of the Holy Spirit, your body, into a sinful one-flesh union outside of marriage, denying God's authority over your body, these are all things to run away from. And proclaiming... uh, producing lifelong relational scars. Don't think that it, it's consequence-free. There was a pastor one time who was speaking to a youth group, and he, he talked to the students, and he gathered them all around, and he took two big, thick pieces of cardboard, and he put the Elmer's glue on it, and did one of these, and he smashed them together, and he set it aside. And then they did their lesson, and they did their activity, and a couple hours later, he came back, and he said, remember what I was talking about earlier, that one flesh union? This is what it's like to try to separate from someone after that one flesh union. This is what it looks like if you don't stay with them in the covenant of marriage. And he took the two pieces and violently ripped them apart. And as you can imagine, there was pieces of this cardboard on that side and pieces of this cardboard on that side and it was all torn up and just a mess. Whenever you engage in a one flesh union with someone, there is more than just physical bodies coming together. There's a spiritual element. Don't think for a minute that this is something that you can engage in without consequence. So to young adults, run away. Glorify God in your body. Make a firm commitment right now that that's not the road you're going to go down. Once again, to the teens, if if you are there, understand that Unless you have the spiritual gift of celibacy, and and, and you need to know that celibacy is a gift, it's a spiritual gift, not a vow. You understand the difference? A spiritual gift is a spiritual gift from God that enables you with, with much more relative ease to say, you know what, those things just aren't a big draw to me. Sexuality, um, um, missing out on a, a lifelong companion with a spouse, I mean, those things just, they're, they're not part of God's plan for my life, and I'm okay with it. That's that's a spiritual gift. It is rare, but it exists. A vow is someone who has normal sexual drive and and desires, just says, 
I'm going to decide right now, I'm, I'm going to go into missions, and I'm just not going to get married. And I'm going to try real hard to stay celibate. No, that's not going to work. So unless you've been given the gift of celibacy, pray to God to send you your spouse sooner rather than later. Marry in the Lord and enjoy a lifetime of God-honoring sex with your spouse who loves you unconditionally and will always be at your side. That's preventative. Now finally, active. If there's anyone here today who has committed or is committing sexual immorality right now and is not in Christ, the message is the same. Run away from sexual immorality and run to Jesus Christ. If you repent of your sin and turn to Jesus, he will forgive you no matter how much sin you have committed or even are committing right now. The Bible says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There are no provisos. There are no conditions on that. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what your past is like. It doesn't matter what your present is like. Like, if you call on the name of the Lord, he will forgive your sin, all of it. And he will welcome you. You are not disqualified from serving the Lord. Turn to him. Put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Renounce sexual immorality. Repent of all your sin and place your faith in Christ. For anyone here today that is in Christ, who is a believer, but is caught in some kind of ongoing sexual immorality, run to him. Run to Jesus. Jesus will give you the power to run away from sexual immorality and to continue to run away. Remember this advice. Don't try to disarm the bomb yourself. Don't stay in the dark. Don't keep it a secret. Let Jesus handle it. Run away and find some cover. Get behind the rock of Jesus Christ. Running in a figure eight will not solve the problem. Going in circles will not escape the blast radius. Jesus promises to cleanse those who turn to him from all unrighteousness and sin. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Once again, if you are in Christ and you've been, been struggling with this ongoing sexual morality, run to Jesus Christ. He will cleanse you. You're not out. You're not disqualified. And, and for any kind of past, whether you're a believer or unbeliever, that does not define you in Christ. You don't carry that with you into Christ. It's been forgiven. The Bible says as far as the east is from the west, you are forgiven. That means infinity. It's done. It's over. It's paid for. And you are a new creation in Christ. So don't camp out on sexual immorality. Run to Jesus and he will forgive and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Paul's message to the raw believers in Corinth is a message that believers still need to hear today in 2022. Run away from sexual immorality and run to Jesus Christ. Amen. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that your, your word is a uh, straight shooter. It, it addresses... The, the topic of sexual immorality and, and what we do with our bodies in a very forthright manner. And it tells us uh, how we are to, to respond and, and to your message of grace and to your gospel. It tells us what we're to do. We are to run away from sexual immorality and run to our Savior and our rock, Jesus Christ. 
Father, I ask that all of us would heed the commandment and run away from from any and all types of sexual immorality, that we would stand firm in the Lord, that we would trust in your promises to cleanse us and to save us, and that whatever our past looks like, that that would remain buried with our old self. You have raised us to new life in Christ, spiritually and bodily. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.